Hey, good morning. My name is Trevor. I think I know most of you, uh, but I'm a member of the preaching team here at Philida Bible Church. And today we're going to be talking about the book of Malachi. This is the final installment in our Minor Prophets Major Wisdom series, where we've been going through each of the Minor Prophets. So today we're going to be talking about Malachi, which is the final of the Minor Prophets. But before we jump too much into Malachi, I figured I'd tell you guys a couple things about myself because I don't know uh, all of you. I know most of you, but not all of you. So one thing uh, about me, currently I'm a senior in college. I'm going to be graduating here pretty soon. And more exciting than that is my wife and I will be celebrating our third wedding anniversary in about two weeks. So we made it three years. (laughs) Right on. Uh, Another fun fact, I don't know uh, if that would be considered a fun fact, but a fun fact about myself uh, is that I used to take karate growing up. This picture is pretty dark. You can't see it very well because of the lights. Um, But this was taken right after I got my orange belt. So my dad and I, oh, perfect, there we go. So on the left is my dad and I'm on the right. And we started taking karate together when I was about eight And we did that all the way through uh, me going through middle school and then high school. And the specific form of karate that we took was called Shotokan karate, which is a very formal and traditional form of karate. Shotokan, uh, the way that it stays traditional is we did everything in Japanese. And so all of our techniques, the names of our forms, the types of sparring that we would do, the stances that we would have, and then how we would count. Uh, Instead of the instructor saying one, two, three, as we do punches or kicks, we did all of that in Japanese. And that was one way that we stayed true to the tradition that Shotokan Karate came from, which was kind of from the samurai lineage. Another way that we would stay true to the tradition uh, that Shotokan Karate came from is we would do a lot of bowing. And this isn't something that's exclusive to Shotokan Karate. This is pretty common throughout a lot of different types of martial arts. But what we would do is we would uh, sort of bookend everything that we did by bowing. So before class and after class, we would bow. When you step on the floor, when you step off the floor. Before you spar, after you spar. Before you start a form, after you do a form. Everything that we do, we would bow. And what you would do uh, is you would stand and you'd put your feet at like a 45 degree angle and your hands, you'd have your hands open, you'd put them at your sides, and when you would bow, it was important that you looked at like a 45 degree angle toward the floor, because that was the formal uh, way for us to bow. And one particular time that we would bow, at the end of every class, we would line up and we would all kneel facing east. And we would face east because that's the direction that Japan was in. And there was this picture of the sky on the wall, which is, yeah, this right here. It was this exact same picture. And we would all kneel. We would say a couple things in Japanese. And then we would bow down to this picture of the sky on the wall. And as a third grader, I remember thinking, am I allowed to do this? (laughs) Is this idolatrous? Is it wrong or sinful for me to bow down to this picture of this guy on the wall? This is, by the way, this is Master Funakoshi. He was kind of the guy that originated and started Shotokan Karate. And at at the end of every class, we would kneel, we'd put our hands out in front of us, and we would bow and touch our forehead to like the tips of our fingertips, to the tips of our, the tips of our fingertips. Yeah, to our fingertips. And I remember thinking and being confused, uh, especially when I was in elementary school, because I'd heard at church 
uh, you know, Bible stories of people that stood up and wouldn't bow down to idols and all the commands that, you know, we shouldn't worship graven images. And I remember thinking, is it wrong for me to be bowing down to this picture of this guy that's on the wall? And of course, no, of course not. What we were doing wasn't in itself idolatrous sinful or sinful. We weren't worshiping the guy. All that we were doing is we were showing him respect because he was the founder of Shotokan Karate, and we, when we were bowing to him, we were just showing him respect. Bowing in Japanese culture, and specifically from that samurai lineage that Shotokan Karate came from, is a way for us uh, to show honor and respect to people. So when we would bow to our instructor or to each other before we would spar, that was just a way of us showing respect to each other before we continued to train. I think that uh, honor and respect is something that we in our modern Western culture really downplay. Uh, I think that's actually a bit of an understatement. I don't think we really care very much about honor and respect in our modern Western culture, which is very different uh, than some Eastern cultures. And I think the reason for this has to do uh, both with the, the recent like postmodern movement, this idea that whatever I want to be true for me is true for me, and whatever you want to be true for you is true for you, uh, and you have no right to infringe upon what I think is true because it's true for me. I think that with the rise of that type of thinking and our focus on individuality, like uh, the prioritization of my own subjective personal experiences, now authority figures, uh, my parents, teachers, um, or my boss, uh, maybe I think that they can't tell me what to do because what's true for me is true for me and you can't come in and start barging in on my truth. And while I don't think that everything about the postmodern movement is necessarily bad, I think that our lack of focus on honor and respect, especially as it relates to authority figures, can be a huge problem. I think what happens is a lot of times we can take how we interact with our bosses or our teachers or our parents, and we can project that type of relationship onto how we view God. And I think this can be dangerous because our failure to honor God, I think it causes us to lose sight of who he really is. Our failure to honor God causes us to lose sight of who he really is. This is the main focus of the prophet Malachi. Malachi is the final of the 12 minor prophets. Uh, they're called minor prophets, not because they're not important, but just because they're a little bit shorter uh, than some of the other prophets. And at this point uh, in the Old Testament, Israel is just being released from captivity. So uh, prior to Malachi, they get taken over by the Babylonians. Uh, their temple that they worship God with is, has been destroyed, and they're taken uh, by the Babylonians away from their homeland. Then the Persians come through, take over the Babylonians, and the Persians allow the Israelites to go back to their homeland and to rebuild the temple. And uh, you would think that things would be looking up for the Israelites. They're finally out of captivity. They get to go rebuild the temple. They're going to worship God how they used to, and everything is going to be great. Uh, but as we read through uh, the Old Testament, it becomes pretty clear that uh, every time uh, something kind of good happens to the Israelites, they usually fall back down into sin. And that is absolutely what happens here. As soon as they get back to the temple, uh, 
they, they fall back into sin. And the particular sin that they're struggling with this time around is that they aren't honoring God in anything that they're doing. And this is what Malachi is calling the Israelites out on. Uh, for the next 20 or 30 minutes, we're going to be talking a lot about what it means to honor God. And before we did that, I just want to define what I mean uh, when we're talking about honor. And the definition that uh, I'll be using for honor is to regard with great respect or to give full weight to authority. So when we talk about honoring God, we'll be talking about what it means to regard him with great respect and to give full weight to his authority. That's what it means for us to honor God. And the main point of Malachi, it's a pretty short book, it's only four chapters. The main point is that God deserves to be honored in every aspect of our lives. Malachi specifically talks about three key areas that the Israelites are not honoring God in, and that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, The first area that Malachi calls the Israelites out on is he says that God deserves to be honored in our worship. And this seems pretty obvious. Of course, God deserves to be honored in our worship. But this is something that's really important for Malachi because he spends um, probably about a third of the book addressing this particular issue. So the Israelites worshipped uh, very differently than we do. They didn't, you know, come together on Sunday mornings and uh, play the acoustic guitar and sing songs. Uh, one of the common ways that they would worship is they would bring sacrifices to the temple. They would, usually this would be a lamb, uh, like a baby sheep, and they would bring it to the temple and it had to be pure, uh, undefiled, it couldn't have any disfigurements uh, or diseases, it couldn't be blind, it had to be pure and spotless, and they would sacrifice it uh, sort of as a symbol for the forgiveness of their sins. And the issue uh, that the Israelites are having here is they are frequently bringing dishonorable sacrifices before God. So let's read from Malachi 1.8, and then I did a little bit of chopping, and then 13 and 14. This is uh, out of the NIV too. Uh, And this is God talking right here. He says, when you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you? When you bring injured, lame, or diseased animals and offer them as sacrifices, should I accept them from your hand, says the Lord. Cursed is the cheat who has an acceptable male in his flock and vows to give it, but then sacrifices a blemished animal to the Lord. For I am a great king, says the Lord Almighty, and my name is to be feared among the nations. The analogy here with the governor makes it pretty clear why God cares about purity and sacrifices. The analogy, uh, he's asking them a rhetorical question. Would you bring these to your governor? Of course you wouldn't bring these to your governor. You'd bring him something uh, that actually would mean something. You'd bring him something that would matter. I was trying to think of a modern analogy uh, for us to kind of relate to this a little bit easier. And I was thinking that bringing and offering a defiled sacrifice 
is like giving your broken toaster to the king as a birthday present because you're too lazy to get him anything else. That's what bringing a a defiled sacrifice before God is like. It's disrespectful and it's clearly inappropriate. And this makes God upset. He's not okay with this type of behavior coming from the Israelites. The reason, though, that he's not okay with this type of behavior is not because he you know, sits up in his throne and he says, I'm awesome, you need to bring me all these sacrifices because I am all-powerful and I absolutely deserve it. While I think that that's true, I don't think that's what God's heart is right here. I think that the reason this makes God upset is because God's attitude is to help us. And when we come to God with improper worship, we're the ones that are missing out. I have a quote from C.S. Lewis. He's uh, probably most famously known for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. He has a quote in his book, The Weight of Glory, that says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling around with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. When we dishonor God with our worship, we are choosing to make mud pies in a slum rather than accepting an offer of a holiday at the sea. So for us, this doesn't look like bringing uh, you know, sheep to church with broken legs or that are blind to sacrifice. That's not what it looks like for us to dishonor God with our worship. I think what it means to dishonor God with our worship, uh, this is not about the form of worship that we have. This isn't about if you play guitar or if you sing well or if you put your hands up in the air. I don't think, no, I know that that's not the issue with dishonoring God in our worship. I was listening to a podcast a couple months ago, and one of the narrators of the podcast said that he was at church one Sunday morning, and he looked over, and he saw during their morning worship service uh, somebody standing, singing with their hand in the air while they were checking Facebook on their phone. And as, as funny as that is, I think that is a pretty clear example of dishonoring God in our worship. I think Dishonoring God in our worship is when we fail to give God his proper place. I have a quote from John Piper that illustrates this. Uh, Dishonoring God in our worship is when you become so blind that the maker of galaxies and ruler of nations and knower of all mysteries and lover of our souls becomes boring, then only one thing is left, the love of the world. For the heart is always restless. It must have its treasure. If not in heaven, then on earth. I think dishonoring God in our worship is when we fail to give God his proper place and treasure him above all things. This is when we become so callous to the gospel, so callous to the idea that God is the maker of galaxies, the ruler of nations, the knower of all mysteries, and the lover of our souls, and we hear those things and we don't care. I think that's what it means to dishonor God in our worship. 
And on a personal note, I know that I'm very guilty of this. I grew up going to church here. My dad was a pastor here for a long time. I'm currently going to Bible school, and I've heard, I don't know how many thousands upon thousands of times that Jesus has died on a cross for me and that Jesus has loved me. Uh, does still love me, not has loved me, still does love me. I don't know how many times I've heard that said, uh, and I get callous to that because I hear it so often. But fortunately, there have been a couple times in my life, usually when I've done something really stupid, that that callous gets ripped off, and I realize truly how amazing it is that Jesus actually loves me. And so I think for us to honor God in our worship is to have that callous ripped off and to know and understand truly how amazing he is and for us to choose a holiday at the sea rather than making mud pies in the slum. It's not very surprising, at least it wasn't to me, that Malachi talks about how we need to honor God in our worship. But, was, but what was surprising to me is that after that, the next key area of the Israelites' life that he says they need to honor God in is in their marriages. God is not only concerned with how we act on Sunday morning. He's concerned with all of our lives, and we need to honor God in every aspect of our lives. And our marriages are something that God deeply cares about. This, this next passage is Malachi 2, 11 through 14, and then 16. Judah, that's Israel, has been unfaithful, a detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. As for the man who does this, whoever he may be, may the Lord remove him from the tents of Jacob, even though he brings an offering to the Lord Almighty. Another thing you do, you flood the Lord's altars with tears. You weep and wail because he no longer looks with favor on your offerings or accepts them with pleasure from your hands. You ask, why? It's because the Lord is a witness between you and the wife of your youth. You have been unfaithful to her, though she is your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, because the man who divorces his wife covers his garment with violence. That is a very intense verse. There's two, kind of two things going on here with how Israel has dishonored God in their marriages. One of which is they have married women who worship foreign gods. And this goes back to the book of Deuteronomy, the fifth book of the Old Testament. God tells his people not to marry women who worship foreign gods because God knows that they're going to lead the Israelites astray. They're going to begin to worship other gods instead of worshiping the one true God. There's a perfect example of this uh, in 1 Kings. In 1 Kings 11, 1 through 6, King Solomon, this is David's son, uh, he is notorious for committing this sin. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. 
He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray, just as God said it would. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely, as David, his father, had done. The issue here is not that Solomon has married foreign women. The issue is that he is marrying women who worship other gods, and that clearly leads him astray. I think that one simple way that we can honor God in our marriages is by marrying other people that are believers. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 39, the Apostle Paul is talking about uh, widows that are in the church. And he says, A woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Spiritually mixed marriages, so if one spouse is a follower of Jesus and one is not, are difficult no matter how nice or loving either spouse is. The issue here is not that uh, non-Christians are bad spouses. That's clearly not true. The issue is that when one of you is guided by the Holy Spirit in everything that you do, and the way that you spend your money, the way you talk, the people you interact with, the way you spend your time, and the other person you're married to is not led by those same convictions, that is going to cause conflict and problems. The issue is not, once again, the issue is not that non-Christians can't be good spouses. The issue is that when the, the way you see the world and your deepest convictions are different, that is going to lead to conflict. And so I think that one way we can honor God in our marriages is by marrying believers. And I understand that this is complicated and there's a lot of what-ifs and difficulties that come up with this. If you have any questions about that, please talk to our elders. They would love to talk to you about it. I can just defer that difficult question onto the elders. (laughs) The second way that Israel has been unfaithful, the first way is that they've married women who worship foreign gods. The second way that they have been unfaithful in their marriages and dishonored God in their marriages is by being unfaithful to their spouses, and by getting divorced, by divorcing their wives. And once again, I know that divorce is very complicated, and the Bible does have a lot to say on it. And if, once again, if you have questions, please talk to the elders about it. They would love to talk to you about what the Bible teaches about divorce. But it is clear that marriage is supposed to be honored by everyone. Hebrews 13.4 says, Marriage should be honored by all, and the marriage bed kept pure, for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. The reason sometimes I think we can take our marriages lightly is because we're taking God lightly. Our marriages are supposed to represent the relationship that Jesus has with the church. And when we are unfaithful or dishonorable in our marriages, that is Uh, slandering and causing a misrepresentation of what Jesus' relationship with the church is. 
And so what, what does it look like to specifically honor God in our marriages? That seems like a pretty vague statement. Like what does that actually practically look like to honor God in our marriages? I think one place we can start is at our church's teaching statement. You can find this online pretty easily. Uh, it says that marriage is intended by God to portray the relationship between Jesus Christ and his church. Therefore, every believer in Christ is responsible to honor God's design for marriage, abstaining from sexual relations outside of marriage and embracing within marriage the equal worth and complementary responsibilities of husbands and wives. A lot of this teaching statement that we have is derived from Ephesians chapter five. And for us, uh, what Paul teaches in Ephesians, what it means for us to honor marriage is for husbands to love your wives as Christ loves the church and for wives to love and respect your husbands. Once again, though, that's pretty vague. Uh, It's easy to say you need to love your spouse or respect them, but what does that actually look like? I think that looks like putting your spouse's needs before your own. Uh, I think for husbands, that's uh, buy your wife flowers, tell her that you love her, take her on dates, And I think all of those things, vice versa, for wives to husbands. I think that's practically what it looks, some examples of practically what it looks like for us to honor God in our marriages. And now, if I haven't talked about, uh, if I haven't been put in enough hot water by already talking about marriage, the third thing that Malachi says that we need to honor God in is in our finances, Not only do we need to honor God in our worship and our marriages, but he also uh, calls out the pocketbook, essentially, of the Israelites, and that they are dishonoring God in the ways that they're spending their money. This is Malachi 3, 7 through 10. It says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. The problem that the Israelites are having here is that they are not, they're not honoring God uh, with their money and with what they're giving. And specifically, they're not giving their tithes. The word tithe uh, is a word that you're probably only ever going to hear, either if you're reading the Bible or you come to church. And what that word means is it just means one-tenth, 10%. And it's usually used in the context of what we need to be giving. And so how it worked uh, in the Old Testament is the Israelites would give one-tenth of their grain or whatever to the Levites, which was the priestly tribe that ran the temple. And that way, the the Levites, the priests, they could do all of their temple duties and they they didn't need to work for money because the Israelites would basically be paying them and giving them money uh, for the services that they were doing at the temple. They would take care of them. And... Uh, The word tithe, though, when we get into the New Testament, 
I think I'm right on this. Uh, the word tithe is never used in the New Testament. Okay, Matt's not in his head. Okay, I think we're good. The word tithe is never used in the New Testament. And so when we come to the New Testament, this standard that they had in the Old Testament about giving 10%, uh, we don't explicitly see that in the New Testament. But what we do see is that the standard set in the New Testament for Christians to give is that we need to give generously. I think that that's kind of vague, but I think that it's actually better than it, that it's vague because otherwise I think we can be content uh, you know, to give our 10% and then not give anymore. I remember when I was uh, probably in middle school, I would do yard work in order to make a couple bucks on the weekends. And I remember one particular week I had made you know, $10 for mowing somebody's lawn. And I made the comment to my dad that I was only allowed to give $1 to the church. And he gently corrected me and he said, no, that's not the way that works. Uh, the, this, this 10% thing I heard someone say, uh, the tithe this idea of giving one-tenth of what we have is the floor, not the ceiling, on what we're to be giving. I have a verse from 1 Corinthians that illustrates this, or 2 Corinthians. Uh, it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. We are merely a steward of the things that God has given us. Instead of thinking that we need to give God 10, I need to give God 10% of my stuff. I think the way to think about it is that God graciously allows us to use most of his stuff. And when we give, uh, once again, I don't think that the only place we should be giving is to our local church. If we make 40 grand or more annually, uh, we are in the top 1% richest people in the entire world. And if you make 20 grand or more, you are in the top 2% of the entire world financially. In the top 2%, two, uh, you're in the richest 2% of the world. That's what I was trying to say. And so I think clearly God has given us a lot financially and we need to give generously and to be good stewards of what God has given. And I don't think this just means giving money to the local church. Certainly we need to be doing that just as the Israelites took care of the, the priestly tribe. We need to be paying uh, our paid staff at church, our full-time and part-time staff members, and we need to be providing money in order to take care of building expenses and whatever other ministry expenses come up. But I think that's not the only way that we should be giving. There are a plethora of awesome agencies uh, that I would encourage you guys to check out and to look into giving to. Um, one of which is, these are just a couple that I think are super cool. Uh, the Voice of the Martyrs is an agency that raises awareness for the persecuted church. So they send letters to Christians that are in prison. They provide relief for Christians that have been tortured in other countries for their faith. And they sneak Bibles into places that aren't allowed to have Bibles. Directly beneath that is the International Justice Mission. Uh, the majority of merchandise, clothing, 
shoes, etc., that we have in the United States is made by slaves overseas. And International Justice Mission is uh, an organization that strives to stop that. And so they go and they free uh, people that are in slavery and in bondage, either if that's like work, slavery, or sexual slavery, they go and they get people out of those situations, they counsel them, they medically take care of them, and then they prosecute the slaveholders. And this is, in, it's basically a Christian organization run by attorneys and like ex-police officers. It's a very, very cool ministry. Uh, there's also Living Water International. We did a campaign for Living Water a couple years ago. And what Living Water does is they go to communities where people don't have clean water, where maybe they've got to hike four or five miles in order to get water out of a gross, uh, you know, dirty water source that's going to get them sick. And they drill a well so that these people have access to clean water. And they do that all uh, in Jesus' name. They preach the gospel afterwards. The final two that I have, Africa New Life and Compassion International, those are both child sponsorship uh, programs. And so that means that you pay like 30 or 40 bucks a month. And the money that you're giving directly goes to one individual child to pay for their food, uh, water, clothing, school, and stuff like that. And what's cool about Compassion, and uh, or Compassion International and Africa New Life is that you get to write letters with your child back and forth. And so they get to, uh, you know, they'll write you back a letter and say like, oh, thank you so much. This is what I did at school today. And they'll draw you a picture of something that they drew at school. And it's a very cool ministry where you directly get to see what you're giving to. And so, in conclusion, Malachi is calling us to honor God in every aspect of our lives, in our marriages, in our finances, and in our worship. And that's not meant to be an exhaustive list. It's not that, oh, I'm honoring God in my worship, my marriage, and my finances. Check, I'm good to go. The idea is that we need to be honoring God in every aspect of our lives. And I know that that is really difficult, but fortunately, as believers in Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit inside us who is continually renewing us and encouraging us to honor God in every aspect of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, I am just thankful for today. I'm thankful that you have allowed us to openly meet together and to openly worship you without fear of persecution or attack. And God, I ask that you would be with us as we strive to honor you in every aspect of our lives. Help us to honor you in our worship, in our marriage, and in our finances. And I ask that as we do these things, that, it, that we wouldn't strive to honor you in those areas as a chore, but that we would do it because we know that a vacation at the sea is far better than making mud pies in the slum. Amen.